Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo, and I'm so excited to be chatting today with Rachel Harrison. Rachel's debut, The Return, was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel. She lives in Western New York with her husband and their cat slash overlord. I have one of those too. (laughs) And her new novel, Cackle, which is the perfect spooky season read, as you'll know if you listen to our fall reading preview, just came out. Um, So welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, so excited to talk to you. Um, I got to read an advanced copy of this book. I was actually, like, from the moment that I saw the announcement in Publishers Marketplace about Cackle, I was like, oh my god, I need to read this. (laughs) Like, it just sounded exactly at my alley. And so I was planning to, like, bug your publisher or you for an arc. But then one day I was at my local independent bookstore, Women and Children First, and they have this little shelf with uh, advanced reader copies sometimes like when you go pick up your pre-orders and stuff and they just so happened to have a copy of Cackle and I felt like it was like Halloween night and I had just <laughs> gotten the best candy I was so excited I think you got an arc before I did did I really I like didn't oh, no. know they existed and I was like oh there it is out in the world oh I didn't it was know exciting that. to see it I mean I read it so I don't like I was I don't need an arc <laughs> still exciting to get arcs I think it's like kind of when it feels like a real book for the first time yeah I think with the return I don't know maybe I'm dead inside because every all these authors post like videos of their unboxing Mm -hmm. and I thought I was gonna get really emotional and cry and my reaction was just like oh cool like (laughs) it was very strange I don't know why I don't get emotional about like seeing I get excited But I see some authors who like, you can tell that like all of the work they put in and every, like all of that emotion comes pouring out. And I don't know, maybe I've just like repressed all emotions. So when I see it, I'm just like, neat. (laughs) (laughs) It's like at the end of such a long process. Like I kind of felt that way too. I didn't cry when I 
got my arcs of my debut. I was like excited for sure. And I took the pictures for social media and the video for everything and everything. But it felt kind of it does feel like there's a lot of pressure to emote in a certain way on social media. And I, I didn't do that either. It just feels so like like you've just read it so many times and you've been through so much. I think I get more excited about other people's books now. Maybe I was very excited about yours. <laughs> Oh, thank you. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. I think because it, you know, once you know how it like the sausage is made, mm-hmm. it's it's a little less. I don't want to say it takes something away, but it's just not that like overwhelming excitement uh, as it is like when you see somebody else's book, pictures of it, and then you're like, oh, I have it in person. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. it's a strange thing. It doesn't feel like magic anymore. It feels like business. Yeah. By the time you get to the phase to get the art because then you've done you know your you know intensive edits and things like that and you know it kind of shifts from the creative process to being more like you said business Mm -hmm. well do you want to tell us a little bit about cackle for anyone who hasn't read it yet sure so cackle is a rye contemporary witch book about annie crane who just turned 30 and was recently dumped by her long-term boyfriend she is sort of forced to start over. Uh, She finds a new teaching job in a small town upstate. She's not thrilled about it. She's not handling the transition particularly well. That is until she meets Sophie, who is this beautiful, mysterious local woman who takes an interest in Annie and the two form a friendship that may or may not be a good thing. I think it's a good thing. We'll talk about that. <laughs> I think um, with a story like this, there's that tension of like, oh, should should Annie kind of give in to everything Sophie wants or like follow her down this path? And for me, though, I was just like, yeah, absolutely. Like do whatever Sophie wants. She has like her life philosophy is correct in every way. She's never done anything wrong. Like I was 100% team Sophie. Um, what I love about this book So I read a review, I think it was the Publishers Weekly Review, called it Cheerfully Ominous, which seems like very, very apt because this book is like super creepy and has a lot of horror elements, but it's also like kind of fun and charming and upbeat in this interesting way. And the setup feels like like a rom-com or like a Hallmark movie or something almost where she's moving to this small town and then it takes this horror turn. And I love that almost like bait and switch, or maybe it's just two great tastes that tastes great together. I I don't know. Did you think of it that way when you were writing it? Like it was sort of the rom-com setup and then the twist into horror or, or not? No, I didn't. I think I was coming at it from more of like a fairy tale Hmm. folk horror hybrid setup where, you know, the, the small town is more of a, like a setup for there's not as many people around. It's pretty remote just to to kind of remove Annie and put her somewhere that is strange to her mm-hmm. and a backdrop to the story where something like this could actually happen where it felt like for the potential for it to be real like you the reader could move to a small town and come across a Sophie that I kind of wanted it to be this like magical place not in a hallmark way but in a like you know you could disappear into this place kind of way mhm 
maybe I just read too many rom-coms. I love that about it, though. Um, I mean, part of like the creep factor, too, is that everybody in the town knows Sophie has some sort of relationship with her. It's like the kind of place where you know absolutely everyone. You know their names and all their business and like possibly several generations back. You know everything about their their family. And so Annie comes into that and is sort of off kilter in that way and has to catch up and doesn't know who to trust or who to believe. And I love that about the setting as well. Yeah, I like the um I liked having the opportunity to create kind of like a cast of of characters of townspeople who are all kind of ambiguous in mm-hmm. terms of like if you can trust them, where do they stand, what are their intentions. In a very mild way, I think the that this book is a lot different than the return in terms of intensity and darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I liked the idea of playing with like on paper everything about Annie's situation is pretty great in general. Yeah. And that kind of idea, I, I'd seen Midsummer before I started kind of thinking about this mm. book. That was sort of the spark that got me thinking about what I wanted to write about next after the return. And just the idea that it was this horror film that's so bright and beautiful, and that's what makes it unsettling, kind of transferred that to, to Cackle, where it's the setting is very idyllic. But that almost makes everything creepier. Like, can yeah. you trust this beautiful small town with this beautiful new friend with these charming, friendly townspeople? Yeah, absolutely. That is one of the most unsettling things about Midsummer: the like bright sunshine and flowers everywhere, and everyone's smiling and like smiling so much it's alarming. <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. Well, let's talk a little bit about Sophie and how you created her. Because for me, reading this uh, as a by woman, it really captured what I feel a lot when I'm around a really beautiful, sophisticated woman, which is that sort of panic of like, do I want to make out with you or do I want to be you? This sort of like aspirational attraction kind of thing. Uh, that's what I felt a lot reading about Sophie. <laughs> I think, I mean, I definitely had that in mind because I think there is part of Annie who's like, it's a confusing relationship. It's like, mm-hmm. do I want to be her best friend? Like she's also very beautiful and we have this very, this intimacy between us. Annie kind of also needs a mother figure in her life. And so there's a lot and, and she's coming off a breakup and Annie's a, she's a self-proclaimed relationship girl. I think some people, and I can be this way too, we latch on to, to one person and we make them our world. That's mm-hmm. not a healthy thing. And I think Annie kind of transfers doing that from Sam, her ex, to doing that to Sophie, who is kind of the easiest trap to, to fall into because she is so wonderful. Of course, you'd want to pour everything into the relationship that you have with her. You'd want to be around her all the time. She's so generous and and lovely. So I, I do, there was, a, when I was writing it, it was definitely my intention to have that, to blur those lines of what their relationship is or could be, because I don't think Annie knows how she feels about Sophie. Mm-hmm. She's like an overwhelming kind of intoxicating presence. And yeah, yeah that intimacy between them is so fascinating because it's, it's like platonic, but there is almost this romantic aspect to it um and I felt that a little bit reading the return too I mean these that happens a lot in close female friendships whether you're straight or bi or gay or whatever like that is a part of a lot of female friendships that's really fascinating that intimacy that that can be created and that kind of obsession even if it's not a romantic obsession 
Yeah, that was definitely intentional in the return as well, especially with the Julie-Elise relationship. You know, Julie will climb into Elise's bed and they'll sleep next to each other. I think when I find my relationships with my friends to be, you know, way closer in very many ways than, you know, with my husband, not to say I don't have a close loving relationship with my husband, but there's something different about female friendship that's hard to articulate that is deep and mysterious. And I definitely wanted to hit on that in the return because I don't, I don't see that particular facet explored a lot in portrayals of female friendship unless it's like you know way obsessive I don't don't think that's rare I think more often it's this subtle possessiveness or subtle like how close are we and is this healthy as opposed to like the single white female kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah it's like a fine line where it can tip over into obsession but also that is just a normal part of a lot of close female friendships that most women have had And it's like a beautiful thing in a way. I mean, I feel like there's so much in our society that tries to pit women against each other and make us compete over men or whatever. And so having those really strong relationships between women, like reading about that and seeing that portrayed is is really powerful. But it is also very complicated. It can turn sour very quickly. And like, I think we've all experienced that like friend breakups can be just as devastating, if not more so than romantic breakups. Oh yeah, 100%. That's something else I was exploring in the return. I've never I'd never read anything about friendship breakup and I mm-hmm. consider the return a friendship breakup book. Mhm. With quite a twist, which I won't yeah. give away. With a little with a little extra. <laughs> yeah, a little just a little. <laughs> I love that book as well. Um, I actually first heard about that through Hallie Sutton, who's a mutual friend of ours. Oh my gosh, she's the best. Yeah. The Lady Upstairs. Just, uh, I love that book so much. It's so fun and so well written. I just, every time I gush, I just sound like gibberish, but I love that book. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Um, and I'm so excited for her her next one, which I know she's hard at work on right now. I'm actually going out to California in a week or two to have a writing retreat with her where we're hopefully both going to finish our next books or get really close. So I'm all for that. I love that. That's great news for readers. <laughs> It's going to be great news for me, too, because I've been working on this book for way too long and I need to be finished with it. I don't know if you feel that way sometimes about your own writing, but you're just like, I can't look at you anymore. Oh, yeah. We we know that feeling. Yep. I know. Yep. Yep. Uh, But The Return and Cackle as well are so original, like such different takes on horror than that I'd ever read before. And I've noticed that I've seen so many literary agents on Twitter, like doing those MS. Uh, what is it manuscript wish list MSWL yeah. tweets saying that they want like fresh millennial horror like Rachel Harrison like I see oh, your name really? so much in these tweets yeah oh that's so nice I haven't seen anything like that that melts my cold black heart oh <laughs> I know I saw one from my agent and I've seen um, some others as well so I feel like your name is becoming synonymous with this very specific kind of horror. Oh, you can't say I'm too sensitive this week. Last night I got emotional over a Dove chocolate wrapper. Oh, no, what did it say? <laughs> I'm very fragile this week, I think, because Cackle just came out. That's just making me very emotional. <laughs> yeah, we are recording this during Rachel's launch week, which is a very, like, delicate time for any author. I will say that. Yeah, I'm. I'm generally pretty fragile, but... <laughs> You know that when you open up a Dove chocolate and it's like, you're worth it. And you're like, oh, I'm so worth it. That's, you know, it's a, it's dark time. <laughs> it's 
you know, authors need a lot of validation. And if that comes from Dove Chocolate, that is fine. Like wherever you can get it. Yeah. It's weird because, I mean, the response has been very good, but I think it's just a very vulnerable thing when you put your work out there. I'm sure you can relate where it's just, even if, you know, the response is overwhelmingly positive, just being like, oh my God, it's out there. It feels very surreal and um, it's, it's strange. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But yeah, I I have seen a lot of people referencing your work in that way, like that they want to see more of this kind of horror uh, narrative that's more about like younger characters and very feminist, very focused on the female experience. And then also something that seems to come up a lot in your books is the like economic disparity between friends. And I find that so fascinating because like, especially in this time of global economic fuckery, like (laughs) I think we all have these friendships that are that are not economically balanced where it's like in the return this comes up so much where they're staying at this at this hotel and and like some of them can afford it and some of them really can't and that conflict is so interesting I appreciate you bringing that up because I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about money Mm -hmm. and I come from a family that's wasn't really shy about talking about money. And I, so sometimes I get myself in trouble because um, certain people, like I could talk to some friends about it and they'll be like, I can, I can tell that they don't want to talk about money, but it's can be a legitimate issue in friendships, mm-hmm. especially I think millennial friendships, because a lot of us, we graduated college and our close friends from college kind of scattered and this was the situation for me. And I had friends who were living in different cities across the country. And a lot of it became, I came to visit you. How come you didn't come to visit me? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm making $30,000 a year and I live in New York City. Yeah. (laughs) Like I can barely pay my rent or afford to eat. You know, this was when I was in my early 20s. And a lot of people had expectations like, well, I want you to come visit me. I want to go do these things. I, you know, my friends who got married young, their weddings were a big financial burden for me. And not to say I wasn't thrilled for them and happy to go, but that's really tricky when you're like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this bridesmaid's dress. That you'll never wear again. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a real strain. And it wasn't something that I had prepared myself for or anybody else prepared me for. And it's hard because I had a, a confrontation with one of my friends who, you know, they said, you know, I'm hurt that you don't come and visit me. Are we even friends anymore? And I had to to fess up and be like, I, I don't, it's not that I don't want to come see you. I don't have the money to. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I wanted to put into the return because it's a real problem. And I think there's also an episode of Friends about this where Rachel, Joey, and Phoebe don't have money and they go out to dinner with... Oh, yeah. And, and they split it, they want to split equally. Yeah. And then, like... And then they have like a break. Phoebe's like, I got a salad and water. And they have like a whole thing. But that's the only kind of example I can think of that I'd ever seen where it came up. And I, again, like you said, there's a lot of economic disparity in the world and it's not getting any better. I think the gap is just getting wider and wider. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's important to 
to have it be discussed in friendships and for certain expectation and expectations to be set and for people to be understanding because it's easy to assume like, oh, how come they don't want to go out to dinner with me tonight? Like, well, maybe they can't afford to go out to dinner with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like it's so relative because it depends where you live and like, do you have kids or not have kids? Do you have a partner? Do you, I mean, everybody's financial situations are so complicated and you can be like, I know in some of my friendships, I'm like the better off friend. And then in some, I'm like the poor friend. And it just depends on, on, on your relationship. And we are encouraged not to talk about this. I think, especially as, as women, like we're just encouraged not to talk about financial issues like it's not polite or something and I think it's such bullshit particularly in the publishing industry which we know is so full of economic disparity and like you know some authors are getting tiny advances and others are getting these huge deals and we're not supposed to talk about it we're just all supposed to act like everything's fine and we're just grateful to be here and by not sharing information and and speaking candidly about it, it just like allows the disparity to continue. So I think it's so important to talk about that stuff, like for feminism, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. And, and in any, you know, relationship, if if you're in a romantic relationship, you're going to have to uh, talk about finances eventually. You know, if you're close to anybody, it's part, it's a hard fact of life. And so I, I think it's important to talk about, and it, it affects the power dynamic. Mm-hmm. I've had friends who have been like, well, I really want to go on this trip with you. Like I'll pay, I'll pay for the hotel. And I don't, and like, there's part of me that's like, Ooh, hell yeah. <laughs> and there's part of yeah. me that's like, I don't feel comfortable with that. Like as much as like, I'd want to go and do that. I, it makes me feel icky. <laughs> like I'm taking mm-hmm. advantage And so it's just, it's important to talk about and set expectations and to, to not let it affect the friendship. Because if somebody is the better off friend and they're allowed to be like, well, I'm going to take you out to dinner or I'm going to start paying for everything that shifts the power dynamic in the friendship and it could shift in an unhealthy way. So it's something to be, to be careful of. But if you're able to have the conversations early and set boundaries, then you're golden. But I think with, with Annie and Sophie, there's very much a, an uneven power dynamic and there are no boundaries at first. Mm-hmm. And Sophie's economic situation is part of the mystery, right? Because it's like she lives in this insane mansion, but she never seems to pay for anything. Like people in the town just give her yeah. lattes and stuff for free. And uh, that's that's part of her whole mystique. It's like, why are they doing that? What power does she hold over them? And I won't spoil for everyone what that is. But I thought that was really fascinating because Annie's kind of like off balance even more. Like she can tell that Sophie has more resources than she does and is more established and like older, she thinks, but she's not really sure how old because she's sort of this ageless beauty but I thought that was an especially interesting aspect of their relationship that that's part of like the the mystery that Annie has to figure out about her yeah and I mean in Annie's relationship with Sam I mean the whole reason that Annie has to move is because she can't afford to stay living in New York City just on a single income Mm -hmm. so she also relied on on Sam when she was in a relationship with Sam and she kind of as much as she's trying to be self-sufficient she meets Sophie and quickly becomes reliant on Sophie. Mm-hmm. So I, again, it's that it's a fact of life that we, we need money and we need food and we need shelter and we need these things. And 
the logistics of those things can sometimes cause us to give away more power than we than we should. Mm-hmm. There is this like fantasy fairy tale aspect for women that we're sort of taught to want like the the handsome prince who's going to come and take care of us and pay for everything. And like, that's the whole 50 shades of gray, like bullshit fantasy. Right. But then that's kind of terrifying to give away that much power like that. The book I'm writing now actually has to do a bit with that, where it's like a very um, economically imbalanced romantic relationship. And I'm really pouring all of my (laughs) personal fears about being economically dependent on a romantic partner, which I have never been like we've either been kind of equal or I've been the breadwinner so far in my relationship. But like, it's really scary. It's like it's a fantasy to have someone take care of you. And it's also terrifying because then what if the relationship goes sour or like something else happens and you're just stuck depending on on this person? Like, how do you get out? I, I don't know. I, I think about that a lot. Yeah. Well, I so a lot of me writing cackle was me like working out my vendetta against fairy tales and Disney movies because I, you know, when I was a young noodle brain child, I, I was the little princess. I ate that shit up. And I thought the only way that I could be happy in life, whether consciously or subconsciously, was if I, you know, fell in love and got married and, you know, my my future husband would solve all my problems and, you know, take care of me. And I very much drank that Kool-Aid. <laughs> and then when I got to my early 20s and met the person I would eventually marry, I was like, wow, I'm in love and I'm happy, but I still have problems. I'm still not fulfilled in my career. Like there's still things that I need to work out. Like my life didn't magically change into this like perfect ideal. And I think it was a rude awakening for me where I had to kind of start going back and deprogramming myself as if I was like raised in a cult where I was just like, wait a minute. (laughs) It is kind of a cult. Yeah. A lot of little girls are raised to to look for outside validation or to to do things in order to be validated and accepted. There was not, I mean, it's I think it's moving in the right direction, but you know, I was a kid in the 90s. There was not a lot of, you know, literature or whatever about how we didn't need to seek happiness outside of ourselves. And that truly fucked me up. <laughs> and so this book is very much me trying to to spin that narrative. And it's not, I wrote the book that I could have used, you know, 15 years ago. And it's, it's like, it goes back to what you said about it's all of those fairy tale narratives and Disney movies, they encourage and they treat that happily ever after Prince comes and saves you as a good thing. They don't talk about the flip side of that, which is, okay, they, they saved you. Now you owe them kind of that kind of the flip side of it. Like, well, now you're the wife who lives in the castle and like, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. It kind of just ends at that. Yay. We're happy. We're riding off on a horse into the sunset. There's no exploration of what that relationship is or what it entails. So 
Yeah, that's where horror and gothic really pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> where <laughs> after the happily ever after, when you find out yeah. who your husband really is or your or your witchy friend. I was thinking too, while I was reading Cackle about um, I mean, there's just been in the past few years this resurgence, it seems like, of interest in witchcraft and tarot and crystals and all this stuff. And I'm super into that stuff I too. I know it's like so. basic at this point, but <laughs> it's just it's like fun and kind of and a way to exercise some sort of of power in yourself like or in conjunction with like in community with other women versus like in a patriarchal structure and everything so I think there is like really something to it like in this time when we're uncovering so much sexual abuse and other things that are extremely fucking wrong with the patriarchy like that we've turned so much to witchcraft as a as a culture yeah, so I, I went to college in Boston, and I'd, I'd been to Salem before then, but my friends and I, whenever we were you know, going through a breakup or to have a like fun, easy trip, we'd go out to Salem. And so after one of these trips, my friend and I were like, let's buy tarot cards and learn to read them. And she never did, but I, <laughs> I did. And so I read tarot. I read them for myself. Sometimes I do like real tarot readings on Instagram. I think tarot is for me more of a a way to reflect on things that are happening or could happen. It's, it's a bit therapeutic. Um, the same with, with crystals where I have pretty bad anxiety and like I'm holding a crystal right now because I said like I psych myself out and I make myself nervous and to have something you can physically hold, I think kind of grounds me. So I'm not too in my head. Yeah. I, I, I think it's important for women to have things where we can, things for us and ways that we can, you know, ex- explore the world around us and, you know, make ourselves feel good and, and connect to other women and to the earth, to our environment. I am very pro witchcraft. I think it's very broad, but there's a lot to explore in any way we want to explore ourselves and explore the world around us I think we're we're entitled to you know as long as we're not harming other people obviously yeah I kind of feel the same way about crystals it's like I don't necessarily believe in all the metaphysical properties but I do find them just like very grounding and pleasant to have around like I have a bunch in my office and I usually have one on my desk that I'll kind of like play with when I'm thinking through plot problems or when I'm on a zoom call or something like there is just something about that especially if and I think this is true of certainly myself, probably most other writers, like you're just in your head so much and it gets you like more in, in your body in this, in this way and like more in touch with your intuition and the like non-logical side of yourself. And that's where I found it really valuable just to kind of like take a break from being so yeah. type A and yep. intense all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I agree hundred percent. Wait, what kind of crystal do you have in your hand right now? I'm so curious. It's a little fluorite. Oh, I love fluorite. I have a, I have like a big tower, and then my, uh, my friend gave this to me for my birthday, and then I also have like a little collection of crystal skulls that are like my my little sons. <laughs> I have a couple of those too, but I feel like I could always have more. <laughs> yeah, I'll grow my collection eventually, but like I think I how many do I have? I think I have five now. So, and I started collecting them like three years ago. So I think over time, like now I get them as gifts because mm. my friends know I like them. So it's very sweet. It's, it's just nice to have physical things. I think a lot of times women in particular are criticized for being like materialistic, but 
you know, we deserve nice things. Yeah, totally. Things that make us feel good. And I can't keep plants alive. So crystals are like the decoration in my office that sort of brings the natural world in. I, I have a like miracle lemon tree. It's very strange. I bought a baby lemon tree last summer and I was like, this is going to die within like two months. I live in an apartment. It's a sunny apartment, but I was like, there's no way I'm going to keep this thing alive. And like two weeks later, it started growing a new branch and it's a year later and it has a bunch of branches and now there's like five little baby lemons. Aw. They're green. So it might be a lime tree actually, but <laughs> or maybe they just need a long time to turn yellow. But I'm very surprised. I'm like, I think this tree is magic. Yeah. I'm like, you must be a witch. I can't keep anything alive. Like even like a succulent, it just dies if I look at it for yeah. too long. I can't do it. <laughs> Me either typically. So that's why I was like, I was like, I'll try it. We'll see. I give it two months. And lemon trees are, I think, are fickle. So I didn't have any expectations. And I might be able to have lemons. So I don't know. I think the tree is magic. I don't know if I'm magic. I think the tree is magic. Either way. <laughs> do you have um, a favorite tarot deck that you like to use a lot? Or do you kind of vary? I kind of switch. I just have the classic Rider Waite. I got it at Borders. RIP Borders. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because we took the train back from Salem and we're in Boston and we were like, actually, we want tarot cards. And then so we went back out to Borders. But yeah, it's the same deck I had since college. So mm, 12 years. Yeah, it sounds right. Um, so I'm like, I have a, I get very attached to things, to my stuff. I was a kid where it was like, if you lose that toy, you're not getting another one. So everything that I have, I covet. <laughs> Yeah, I just keep buying more and more, and it's kind of ridiculous at this point. Uh, but I'll do readings with like multiple decks just to use all of them because I like the aesthetics. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's so there's so many beautiful decks out there that I know if I started to collect them, I would I'd get out of control very quickly. Well, that's the thing; it's a slippery slope with crystals yeah. and tarot and all of that stuff. It's like, <laughs> but you know, can never have too many of those things or of books. That's my philosophy. Okay. Whatever makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. Whatever makes you feel good. Um, do you have any like favorite kind of spooky books for, for this time of year or any time of year really that you would recommend to our listeners? So my favorite book that I read this year, Build Your House Around My Body by Violet Cooper Smith. What a great title. I describe it as like a folklore ghost story visit from the goon squad mm. where there's multiple narrators and or multiple perspectives and multiple timelines and they're all interlinked in this really beautiful way. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous book that has some genuinely unnerving moments. I recommend that book to anyone. It's so, it's so good. But I also want to reread The Year of the Witching by Alexis Henderson. I read it last, I think September, and I was like, I'm going to read this, reread this every October. It's just such a great witch book. I haven't read either of those yet, so they are going on my spooky reading list for sure. As is your next book, which sounds incredible. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. <laughs> um, it's called Such Sharp Teeth. It's a lady werewolf book. Amazing. And I haven't like, I'm still in early stages, so I haven't perfected my like elevator pitch. But that's really all you need is lady werewolf book. Yeah. Like <laughs> that says it all. 
yeah, it's kind of about rage and vulnerability, and it's also a love story in it. I haven't really gone into any romance yet, so uh, just a little romance in it. And yeah, I'm in the process of editing it now, and yeah, I I wrote it this time last year in kind of like a fury. I like wrote like ten thousand words in one day oh, wow. at one point, and I was just like, "Whew!" Um, like it just kind of poured out of me, and I really, really, really love this protagonist. So much fun, so much fun. She's kind of the polar opposite of Annie in, in quite a few ways. So I would say, in terms of like on the horror scale, it's probably in between Cackle. And The Return. The Return is pretty intense and dark and um, I would say straight up horror and cackles a little bit, say a little bit lighter in tone. And I think um, Such Sharp Teeth, it has a lot of humor, but there's definitely obviously body horror because mm-hmm. if you're turning into a werewolf, it's going to get gruesome. Mm-hmm. So I want to see you just tackle like all of the classic horror monsters like <laughs> yeah, my my agent was like, we have a bet about what you're going to do next. <laughs> I do have a, an idea for, for book number four, but um, we'll keep that for for next okay. time. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Such Sharp Teeth is, is supposed to come out next October, so October 2022. Amazing. Well, I can't wait for it, and um, I'll probably bug you for an arc of that one unless I happen across one magically as I'm going about my day again. Like I did with Cackle. Um, okay, so it's been so fun talking to you. Um, and everybody, Cackle is out now, so you can go get it and get your spooky season reading underway. Um, Rachel, do you want to tell us where you can find you on the internet? Sure. So uh, my website is rachel-harrison.com. I'm on Twitter at rachefacelogic, and I'm on Instagram at Rachel Harrison's Ghost. And I bet you can tell which one of those was made drunk at a bar and which one was made. After I was already knew I was going to be a published author. <laughs> well, they're all amazing. I think it's good to have variety. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll look forward to whatever you write next. Because I just, like I said, I don't think anyone's writing horror literature the way you are, and I'm a huge fan. That means so much to me. Thank you so much. This has been the most fun, and I will certainly get you an arc if we can chat again next year. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.